You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Up next is Casey Atayero. Casey is the Chief External Affairs Officer at the Joyce Foundation. We have the opportunity to know each other through the work that we both do at the Joyce Foundation, me as a trustee, and you're on the the team leading the comms team. And so I would love it if you would just introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Casey Atayero. I am Chief External Affairs Officer at the Joyce Foundation. We are a Chicago-based foundation that supports public policy, research, education, and advocacy across six program areas. And we fund largely across the uh, Great Lakes region. And so in my role as a Chief External Affairs Officer, I oversee the Foundation Strategic Communications, our journalism program, and our community grants fund. And the journalism program is relatively new. Yes, it's about a year old, yes. How did that evolve? Because that's a really interesting space to be in, particularly in the age of misinformation and many people looking at narrative change and the power of communications. Can you say a little bit about why you all moved into that space? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it initially started as just a recognition that the contraction of the news industry were just creating these huge gaps in coverage of our issue areas, particularly public policy, huge gaps in statehouse coverage. And, you know, journalism is a key tool in interrogating the ideas and sort of kicking the tires on the things that we hope will be solutions to the problems that we're trying to address. And if you don't have, you know, boots on the ground in newsrooms, in state houses, doing the reporting, you just aren't really able to get the same level of critical uh, coverage of the issues. So it initially started as wanting to help repopulate, if you will, the reporting ranks across our region of people who do in-depth policy reporting. And then it really evolved to look at the broader issues of democracy and how, as you say, misinformation and disinformation is really affecting you know, how people engage or don't engage with their government, with, with their elected leaders, um, how they view democracy, and how particularly bad actors are weaponizing media to destabilize our our systems. Have you been paying attention to what's happening with Twitter? Yes, yes, I have I mean, obsessively. Have you like? Do you think <laughs> it's a car wreck? Like, how do you stop looking at it? It's unreal. Like, I have to put the phone down because, and it's so bizarre to watch Twitter unravel on Twitter. Right. It's just it's a really interesting experience. But I will yeah. say this, and this may not age well, but I don't think it's going to go away. I don't think it will either. But yeah. I think this whole thing. Right. Because when we talk about media and representation and freedom of speech, like it gets mm-hmm. very clunky. Yes. But representation does not. No. Like that's a really clear point of view yes. for some of us. Yes. And particularly, you know, there was a lot of conversation about the role of Black Twitter, right? And what happens if Twitter goes away? And Black Twitter is definitely a source of Of much entertainment, right? Right, much entertainment, much joy (laughs) to the community. But, you know, Black Twitter was also how the story of Ferguson was told, right? And how the stories of a lot of issues of injustice have been and continue to be told. So 
there is a vital societal role in having that community have an outlet. And, you know, not just within the U.S., but if you look broadly across the globe, I mean, Twitter has been a main communication tool for people who are fighting injustice, for dissidents, for people who are being persecuted by their governments all across the world. And if it goes away, that's going to be a real loss uh, for people who are in the movement for justice. Yeah, fair point. Speaking of representation, we were communicating back and forth about the Columbia Journalism Review. Mm. They have a new research article out. How much press are you worth? Yes. So it's, it's a model that lets you put in information about sort of who you are, your race, ethnicity, background, where you um, where you live. And then it'll it'll give you a sense of like if you were to go missing, essentially, um, what kind of coverage your local media outlet would give you. And I think I had four stories that I would get. What, what was the number that you got, Shonda? I got 14 because yeah. I'm a little bit older than you. So I guess. <laughs> but I think, but I think it was also media market, too. Right. So in okay, Chicago, you know, I'm competing with a lot of different stories, but I think it's also a reflection of, you know, again, who is populating these newsrooms and who are telling the stories. That's why yeah. diversity in newsrooms is, is so critical because people, I mean, there's a reason why there is a bias towards the young white blonde woman who disappears because of who typically makes the editorial decisions in newsrooms. Right. And so they, in fact, compare you to a young white woman in this tool and so I think I had, I would be covered by 14 news stories. I think it was like, you know, eight local, the rest were national compared to like 124, 127 uh-huh. uh, articles that would be covered if I were younger, white and female. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, that tracks. I mean, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. And you see it by sort of the wall-to-wall coverage of, you know, sort of Gabby Petito, for example, the summer, I think it was, right? Or maybe it was was a lot of coverage of that case. And it's not to say that her case shouldn't have been covered, but if you think about all of the Black and Brown women who just vanish Mm -hmm. every year, who don't get a fraction of that coverage. And so this is, you know, a case that we hope no one gets coverage on, right? Someone that's gone missing. Exactly. But I think the point is well taken that I assume that this also relates then to coverage on issues that are representative to the communities and issues that are important, which going back to the the, the previous conversation, which is why we rely on, on Black Twitter to tell yes. us what the news is, mm-hmm. because it's more reflective, it's more proximate, it's more committed to making sure that we're mm-hmm. informed than when we have found the broader media to be. And so is that part of the work that you and Joyce are looking to do is to to increase representation? Absolutely. To not only to increase representation, but to help create better environments in newsrooms so that uh, journalists of color can thrive and ascend. You know, I think a lot of programs, I talk a lot about the pipeline to a cliff. Like you don't want to like try to get a bunch of people in the door and then they just sort of left to their own devices. Um, I mean, I certainly had that experience. I think about um, one experience in particular, I think sort of illustrates the challenges of being a black journalist in a newsroom. Several years ago when I was working at the Tribune, you may recall um, when uh, Jennifer Hudson's family was tragically murdered. 
And I was sitting in a newsroom and I was the only black journalist in this corner of the newsroom. And a white senior editor made a beeline all the way over to me and said, asked me, do you know anybody who knows Jennifer Hudson? <laughs> oh, why would I be the one? <laughs> it was like, yeah. why would I know anybody who knows Jennifer Hudson? Um, as opposed to any of the white journalists who are sitting around me, some of whom are from Chicago, who yeah. may actually have known Jennifer Hudson. And, you know, it was, um, it was an example of sort of a twofold problem, which is one in newsrooms being made to feel like the other and how, you know, you can only do that for so long before you just start to feel like you don't belong here and you find other things to do. Um, but also about how the media, the mainstream media, or I guess now we call it legacy media, would only go to certain neighborhoods when something was wrong. So because we didn't cover her neighborhood, we didn't have any sources there. We didn't know anybody there. And so when something happened, we had to try to scramble to find the first Black person who might know somebody. It was, I mean, I saw it every day as a reporter. I would go to communities on the South and West Side, and people would say, oh, baby girl, you seem nice, but I can't talk to the Tribune. Mm -hmm. I mean, frequently. And I couldn't even be mad because I understood, because the only time we came is when there was something wrong, and we didn't tell the stories of we didn't tell the stories of the complexity, right? And, and, and the positivity that was going on in these communities all the other times, right? It was only when there was some horrific thing that happened that we show up. And it's very obvious that we just don't care any other time. So why would they talk to us? I have shared this before on this podcast and with others is that, you know, growing up in a neighborhood like that, right? Or a neighborhood that's been defined as a black neighborhood um, North Minneapolis, that as a child, you know, I was always sort of listening to how outsiders described the neighborhood, mm-hmm. which was from my own experience. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's not just as a child. I still live here. I still experience this. Mm-hmm. And so it has been foundational to how I lead in terms of making sure that we're lifting up the complexities, the multiple narratives, and that we don't get so comfortable describing people in neighborhoods by its problems that we forget um, to amplify the tremendous assets, the community, the brilliance that exists within the community. The humanity. The right? humanity, the dignity, right? The opportunity, like the, the beauty, the, the history, the mm-hmm. richness, right? The honoring of what has been here. And I think that we failed to do that. And, and we have a big role to do that in journalism, also in philanthropy. Yes. I recently, even with Jesse Leon, who I just spoke to and in a, in a conversation, how we submit proposals, how we frame things um, when we're talking about groups that we're working to help, it all matters. Yeah, it does. It absolutely, it all matters. And I think, you know, it's really important to have people who are evaluating those applications um, who have that lived experience. Um, I, I think about it a lot in this role. I've been in philanthropy almost five years and I've had you know, the pleasure of sort of witnessing how much of an impact it can make to have someone like me or someone like you doing this work. 
um, as opposed to other people who just may not be as connected to community or may not have um, as diverse of experience. And, you know, I also, I consider myself a product of philanthropy. You know, I grew up in a similar neighborhood as you probably, um, a low income neighborhood in uh, east of the river uh, in Washington, DC. It was the height of the crack epidemic when the city was eating its young. Yeah. And if you just looked at my zip code, right? Like I'm not supposed to be sitting here based mm -hmm. on the statistics. And philanthropy made a difference for me. I won um, a scholarship to college from Donald Graham, who is the former owner of the Washington Post. He launched a scholarship program in honor of a friend of his, uh, Herbert Denton Jr., who among his many accomplishments was the first black city editor of the Washington Post, and who was a firm advocate for diversifying the newsroom and, and um, promoting and supporting and mentoring Black journalists. And actually, a lot of the giants in the field today, uh, Black journalists are ones who um, were mentored by him. And, you know, if I hadn't won that scholarship, you know, I probably would have been one of the many uh, students who had to sort of work my way through to try to pay for school and then you know, you know the story, life gets in the way, life demands overtake your, you know, school dreams, and then you end up graduating with debt instead of, or end up not graduating with, like, debt instead of a degree. Right. And your whole life trajectory is just different. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that every day, actually, when I'm talking to people who are looking for support, because I know how transformative philanthropy can be for people and transformative in ways that you don't always have neat metrics for. Like we're a sector that loves metrics. <laughs> oh God. You know, we love being able to put things on a spreadsheet, right? But I can trace not just my trajectory, but my whole family's trajectory really mm -hmm. to the moment that I got that call. And I think that there needs to be more people in this space who knows, you know, what it feels like to be on the other end of that call, because I think it just gives you perspective to think about, you know, how we engage with community and how we make it more accessible, right? So people have our numbers and that we, and that they know that they can reach us and we can have conversations about how to have, how to have more people have the opportunity to have their lives changed that way. That's right. You remind me of a conversation I had with a young, really super talented young woman that um, I had hired at the foundation, Yadi said, and Yadi, when she, she came, she said, you know, I really didn't know that much about the Minneapolis foundation before I got here. And now I realize all the ways in which it touched my life. Mm -hmm. And I did, I had no idea. Right. So the investments mm -hmm. we make in schools, the investments we make in neighborhoods, the, the small businesses that we might support through our intermediaries, mm -hmm to all of the other investments that we make around community. Yeah. And she's like, you've touched almost every level of my life and my family's life. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And it we is. do that regardless. Like we, like it's all the kids that come through those doors that yep. some will benefit from some investments that a philanthropist or philanthropy has made. And mm -hmm. so that's a really, really valid point. I appreciate yeah. that. 
So you also, last time we talked, I learned that you you were an owner, a coach? Oh, yeah, I was a part owner and a general manager of a minor league basketball team, men's and women's. Um, I lifelong basketball fan, have no talent. So, like, I wasn't a player, just was always a fan. Um, and a friend of mine owned the team, and I just started helping out for fun, and it evolved. And it was a really great sort of five-year experience of learning the business of basketball. And, you know, you there is no greater leadership school than trying to corral, you know, 13, 15, six foot plus guys um, <laughs> and to get them to listen to you when you have never played and really only know the game as a fan. It was definitely um, in some ways trial by fire, but a really, really, really great experience. And I learned a lot about me think about just sort of pathways. It was really eye opening to see what happens to particularly young black boys when people identify them earlier early as having talent and then that's what it becomes all about and then if you don't end up making it then you just sort of are floundering a bit right like people don't talk about the people who maybe don't make the d1 squad right you know it's like one percent of the best players in in the country high school players make it to like a you know an elite d1 school and then like less than that make it to the nba and yeah. so the guys who played for us were ones who like had maybe decent college careers wanted to continue to play and they wanted to get stats and films so they could either go overseas because you can make a lot of money playing in some countries overseas or hopefully try to get on the G League MBAs minors. You know, my kids are athletes and particularly my older two, uh, Dom and Malik. And I was a different mom than I am now with my younger two. And so I was I was more of a bear. Like, you come for my kids, I'm coming for you, right? Like, mm-hmm. I was more of a bear. But, you know, I would have people all the time, you know, they, they were um, very driven athletes, student athletes. Mm -hmm. And there would be people that would say, you know, like pay attention to your academics and do this and do that, which, you know, I, I I can appreciate the, the village. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also felt like don't rain on my kids' dreams, like let them be great. And at best, if they get a scholarship, let them get the scholarship, get their degree and they can figure it out from there. But I think it's really interesting on how we, because there's so many lessons that come from being an athlete that I think are valuable for young people. I get the statistics, but I think there's so much value. And I think it's de-emphasized sometimes in our academic programming. Do you think that we have the type of balance that we need? You know, whether or not it's athleticism, arts or whatever, like sometimes I think we want these kids to just be crammed with, you know, reading and math and we we always address them as whole people. Right. I mean, I agree with that. I think, though, you know, when you are on the elite sports circuit, they don't really allow those kids to be whole people either. Like like everything you do becomes about the game. Right. And you know, you, they identify you at eight or nine years old as having talent. And all of a sudden you get on the AAU circuit and you're playing year round and you're playing with your school team and you're right. doing now you can get a Nike scholarship. Right. Now you get a Nike scholarship and you, you know, and you're traveling and, and you, yeah, you don't get to really be a whole human being. And I think that that is why if you don't end up making it, which most people yeah. don't, then they don't know who they are. 
if they aren't playing ball because they never had a a chance to figure it out. And so, you know, just going back to like the representation. So here you are leading on this team and you're a woman, they're men, you are a spectator, not a player. (laughs) Right. And so again, you're sort of in a space where you're probably one of few. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? What, What were the leadership lessons that you learned? Because there are many listeners that may not have this experience. Yeah. They might have the experience of being in a place where they're either leading someone who is the first or the few in the space that they are working in, or they might be that person. So what what advice might you have? Um, I would say listen more than you talk and have, I mean, just heaps of humility. You know, I think you just have to be straight up about what you don't know and be open to learning. And I think if your team knows that you're in this to help them win, right? Like this is, this is about me figuring out the best way to help you achieve your dreams, the best way to help you achieve your goals, then that's how you get buy-in, right? Like, like there, we, I, have, I have skin in this game with you too, mm-hmm. right? And, but then you also have to do the work. Like I went to practice three nights a week. You know, I traveled on a smelly bus with them on the road. (laughs) Like I was all in, right? Like you can't just sort of like have them ride the bus to the middle of nowhere and you're flying in or you're driving in a comfortable car. You know, it's like I I did the work with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that made a difference too. Yeah. So Brittany Griner. Yeah. Yeah. That story makes me so sad. I mean, we had we had a women's team too, and a men's team and a women's team. And the women, you know, also would go overseas and play. And, you know, I think her case is really um, an example of the gross pay inequity. A player of her caliber shouldn't have to go overseas to supplement their income. Um, you know, the average NBA player makes, I think I saw the stats like 44 times that of the average WNBA player. Now, you know, there are definitely some revenue differences for sure. You know, the NBA's annual revenue is in the billions and WNBA's annual revenue is in the millions. Um, but there is certainly enough and should certainly be enough revenue to keep people, keep, keep women from having to go overseas and play like on the off season or what well it's so funny like some of them consider the WNBA to be their off season because they can make more money they can make a lot more money sometimes four or five times more I think the top players in the WNBA make about 200 something like that right right and so you know I I don't know what Brittany was making in Russia but I'm sure it was I mean they can make a million dollars And so that's why I think it was this year the league um, implemented a rule where players have to be, um, they have to be in town for the opening of the season because there was overlap, right? And some players were just sitting out the first few games so that they could finish their seasons overseas. And so it's one of those things where playing in the WNBA gets them sort of the notoriety and cachet to be able to, you know, command the higher salaries overseas, but it's not really where they make their money. And so you have some players that will just sit out altogether. 
you know, so the pay inequity between um, women and men show up for sure in, in between the leagues. Yeah, absolutely. And and so what you're drawing here is that Brittany Griner, um, because of this, was placed in a situation that landed her where she is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if she if she had been able to make a comparable salary mm-hmm. in the U.S., there would have been no need for her to play in Russia at the fundamental level at a fundamental level. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much conversation about this, including, and obviously I think she should be at home, right? Like, I just want to say this up front, but I've heard a lot of people where, you know, this is not unusual to say, well, she should have knew the rules of the land. Like, why would she even have the the vape or whatever it was? Like, why would she have that? Why why didn't she know better? Mm -hmm. And I think it's very easy to jump in. And I think we see that even in the neighborhood. Like, why didn't they just know better? Right. Like, 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 you know, like, like, let's just blame the victim. Why didn't you just know So we're saying that we think that nine years in a penal colony is an adequate and appropriate and proportionate punishment for having a vape cartridge in your luggage. Is that what we're saying? Because I mean, that's I I that's just madness to me. And that is also assuming that you can trust anything that the Russian government says. I mean, we're acting like we're dealing with a fair and just legal system, and that she is the only American who has gotten caught up. So you can make that argument for any American that goes anywhere and finds themselves in legal trouble, like maybe that they shouldn't have gone there. I mean, she, it wasn't, she wasn't, um, you know, sightseeing or, you know, in, in some inherently dangerous place. It was a team that she had played for for several years that several other people had played in. And she just had the misfortune of going through the airport, you know, on the cusp of a war. You know, I think this probably would have been a non-issue if Russia was not preparing to invade Ukraine. So I, and I just, it's what can be really, really frustrating about our community sometimes is that we will sometimes rally for the wrong thing. So for the same people who are bending, contorting themselves into pretzels to make excuses for Kanye West, are saying that this woman deserves to nine years of hard labor for vape cartridge. It's the same people. Yeah. And it's just madness. Yeah. What, what role do you think that media could have had with the Griner case? And I'm I mean, saying, let me, well, let me contextualize why I'm asking this question because I was in uh, New Orleans at the Essence Fest and Essence has a women in sports. And there was a conversation there with Al Duncan and other folks and Al's on um, ESPN. And um, they were talking about just the, the coverage around this and that, um, you know, again, the Columbia journalism, like, was there enough coverage? Was there enough political pressure do you think that the the um, elevating the issue, was there enough elevation of the issue or was it more like Britney did or this is Britney, but like, was it, could it have been bigger and more? And do you think that it could have helped? That's a good question. I mean, 
it would have been a completely different story if LeBron James was trapped in Russia. I mean, just no doubt, right? Um, but I think because of the war and the tensions between Russia and the US, I actually don't think it would have helped. I mean, Brittany is a valuable bargaining chip, unfortunately. Yeah. And the longer that this war goes on and the worse Russia fares in this war, the more challenging it is to negotiate to get her back. Mm. So I think, you know, just from what I'd seen early on, it seemed like there was an effort to try to actually minimize coverage so that they could sort of try to negotiate this backdoor deal without in a way that could maybe have Russia save a little face. And, you know, it definitely seemed like they, that there were attempts to not really, you know, talk about it much. And then that posture changed. I, I, I definitely think the coverage would have been different if she were a male basketball star, but I don't know that it would have helped her. That's a fair point. When I think about it more broadly and sort of, again, going down this, this theme of sort of representation and engagement, right? There's many of us that are now more engaged on issues related to politics than we probably ever have been mm-hmm. because of social media, because of how visible these issues are, whether or not it is Kanye, whether or not it's Brittany Griner, mm-hmm. whether or not there are um, police in, involved deadly encounters that have been highly visible, that have engaged us to be activated in our local communities, to other injustices that are happening. It is engaging us. Do you, But I'm not sure that it is moving us to be more engaged at the ballot box mm-hmm. Are more engaged and being involved in um, local politics. Do you have a sense of that or any insight? I think it looks different generationally. I see and we have seen energy among younger voters. And then you have sort of the older voters who are your bedrock vote all the time folks. Uh, I think the challenge is there are too few people in this country for whom elections have any appreciable impact on their lives. You know, it's like, regardless of who is in the office, my conditions aren't improving and in some cases are getting worse. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yes, we encourage people to vote, but at a certain point, you can't keep asking people to do so without a return on that investment. You know, and I think that we have to improve the value proposition for people and to make the case of why it is their lives would be appreciably better if they got engaged. I just spoke with Eric Holder. He has his new book, Our Unfinished March. In our conversation, he had shared that the younger voting block, 19, I think it was to 29, is the largest voting block mm-hmm. now in our country. Mm-hmm. But predictably, like you said, it's the boomers that vote all the time. And so mm-hmm. while it might be the largest, it has the least power because it's not actualizing right. that collective vote. Right. 
Right. And so the ideas, the energy, the opportunity, and they're they're the most inclusive generation, right? They're the most welcoming to those that others have not been as welcoming to. And so there's a lot of opportunity if we can create that value proposition. What role do you think philanthropy can have in helping to create that value proposition? I think it comes from policies, really, like thinking about ways that we can use public policy to improve people's condition and then make the argument for elected officials to support those policies mm-hmm. and draw a straight line as much as we can between what happens at the ballot box and what happens in your home. And I think that it really is about how can we seed more real solutions that people can feel? Mm-hmm. You know, so much of what the so much of what is talked about broadly in politics just feels so disconnected from how everyday people live their lives. Right. And if, so if we can think about ways to have more sound and just and fair policies that improve just sort of the barter condition and then educate people on how those policies improve their condition and then explain why it is it it is then important for you to support X person or Y person. And that sort of, I mean, that gets outside of sort of what philanthropy should do in terms of like promoting individual candidates, but just making the case that, okay, here, here are the solutions, here are the things that can make a difference. And then so that is why you should vote for people who support these things. This is why you should show up, you know, for for these things. And I I think we just, I think we can be that connective tissue for people. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really what's missing. Like people just sort of don't get inherently the connections always between going to vote and what that means for my life. Yeah, and, I get that. Until you start getting older and then you're like, ah, oh, I see. Right, right, right. But like, you know, if you've got these younger people, those folks, by the time you wait 20 years, so many yeah. of the things that are going to adversely affect you are already in motion. Yeah. And not to discount sort of the level of understanding, but I'm, I, I am just actually appreciating the value of more complete understanding as I have lived. And like, oh, yeah. oh, I understand this this better, right? I understand the importance of, of this differently than I did when I was younger. The midterms were surprising in some ways. Did you follow mm-hmm. the midterms? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was Did, did anything surprise you um, in terms of the midterm elections? I mean, definitely. I, I was, I mean, I think everyone was surprised that the Democrats did as well as they did. Um, and I think we're still trying to sort of figure out what happened. But the hopeful sign I'm trying to draw from it is that people have just started to reject the crazy, right? <laughs> reject the crazy. Right? They started to reject Bad the hack. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, it was a really scary proposition to have all of these election deniers who might be controlling the next election um, and to have people who, I mean, who you wouldn't you wouldn't hire to do anything important, who wanted to hold these really important offices. And it wasn't clear 
it felt like a very clear and present existential threat for democracy. Again, and with that connective tissue, it wasn't clear that people, it was registering with people, you know? And, you know, to be clear, like when I say that, that people don't always connect the dots, it isn't because of apathy. Like, I don't believe that. Um, but when, like I say all the time, you know, that the debate about the fate of the Republic is really the luxury of the comfortable, right? It is the luxury of people who have the free mental space because their mortgages are paid and their kids are fed and clothed and they're not worried about how they're going to scrape together gas money, you know? And so because of that, you then have all of these free space to debate all of these broader 30,000 foot issues. And so it's not that I think that people don't care, but like the very immediate survival needs, I think just really consume a lot of folks. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so because of that, and because, you know, we were coming up on an election where people are hurting, right? Like at every point of sale, everything costs more. You can't um, find baby formula. You can't find baby formula, right? It's like, I mean, people, people have been through a lot. You know, it's been a rough, rough year for people and continues to be. And people are, you know, nervous about sort of what that means for them and their families. And just given sort of historically how midterms typically go, right? It just seemed like all of the conditions were ripe for some of these crazies just to completely, you know, slip in. Mm -hmm. And I hope again, that this means that with all of the things competing for people's time and attention and concern, that the fundamental bedrock principles of our democracy are ones that across the divide, mm -hmm. we all still believe in and want to protect. Absolutely, because this is not a partisan argument. This is no. about having people in elected roles that have the experience, the capability, the willingness to support all of the residents mm -hmm. in their wards in their their yeah. electorate, right? Like to, to think broadly about how they can bring policies forward that support the advancement and the health of community. And to know that this is bigger than themselves. Yeah. Right? Like this yeah. this is bigger than your Twitter war moment or your Fox News hit, right? Like this is bigger than that. And for people to sort of understand the weight of the work, you know, like, I mean, we're at a point now, I mean, it's the number of times I heard that people note that so-and-so conceded. And it's like, we had gotten to a point where it's now news, like real news that someone has conceded with grace and humility and dignity and has, you know, wished their opponent well. In a lot of ways, again, sort of sad that we had gotten to that point, but I was I was really heartened by the number of candidates who made a point, yeah, of saying that. yeah to be gracious, right? Yeah, I'm really interested in just in watching how you work and how you lead, and particularly how you represent the Minneapolis Foundation. Um, what role do you see communications playing in the work that you do? Like, how do you use communications to advance your work? Ah, that's a good question. I think communication is um, the bedrock of everything. 
And I think there is the function of communication. And then I think there is a tensionality of how you communicate. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that I believe that how I show up every day and how I communicate um, shares with those within my listening, right? The value of the foundation and the work that we're doing. That the consistency between how I show up, how the work shows up and how we're messaging is aligned. Hmm. The communication strategy at the Minneapolis Foundation is inaccessible to um, some of our stakeholders that we are hoping to support, then we still have work to do. That we cannot forget to center our why on who we are here for and and the responsibility and understanding our role is to bridge many perspectives, right? At a community foundation, and even in my work that I led before, you have people that enter different doors, right? Like you might come in this community center door, or you might come in as a donor, you might come into this program, you might be a, another funder partner, you might be a government partner, you enter in different doors, and that's your, that's your point of view. The value of being in a community foundation and your communication is actually opening up the door for them to see someone else's point of view. Right. And that is a responsibility and an honor, right? It is a gift to be able to to understand, right? To listen, to understand someone else's perspective and and an honor to carry it, to allow someone else to, to hear it and perhaps to expand their worldview. And I see that as the work of of philanthropy is an expanding worldview and points of view so that we can all move together, um, not with the same strategies, right? Not with the same beat, not with the same um, anything, but maybe with a shared expectation that we can all actually do well. We can all actually be healthy. We can all access, right? right? We We can all actually access like healthcare, Mm-hmm. And, and live in homes that have heat, mm-hmm. that have food, where we can feed our babies. Yes. Right. That we can we can age with dignity. Yes. We can travel our, our streets with with the understanding that we'll be safe. I think there can be some guarantees. And I think the role of communications is evolving and should not be a place where you beat your, your own drum, but a place where you are amplifying the beat of others. Yes, absolutely. And it, it struck me when you said, when you talked about sort of how you show up and, you know, I definitely think the most important thing that you can do really to communicate your values is just to show up, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of organizations spend a lot of time on press releases and flashy videos and things. And it's like the most important thing you can do is just show up. Yeah. You know, and have people see you and know you and get a sense of the work that you're doing and know that you really want to be a partner in the work like that. That is worth 10 press releases. Yeah, that's that's priceless. I I do think that like me personally, I think what I have tried to do um, as a person 
is to be as consistent as I can be. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you know, I have shared this, like as extroverted as I look, I'm the quite the opposite of that, um, which people can misread. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of self-awareness around that. And so I try to be consistent and as warm as welcoming as I can be Mm -hmm. because I represent the organization that I work for, right? Like the Minneapolis Foundation, Pillsbury United, right? The boards I sit on and that by me not be welcoming, they can translate that into the foundation is not for me. Absolutely. And so I have understood that in my leadership journey. And I understand that even in my business, right? Like today, like I'm dedicating a bunch of time to catch up on these emails, these direct messages, these yeah. text messages, like they come in all kinds of shapes and forms, right? And I'm excited <laughs> and I miss them. And I hope to goodness that the community, you know, that that sends those messages and trusts me to receive them, you know, are sort of, you know, charging it. Um to my head and not my heart because it's hard to balance everything, but I hold that really valuable and try to do my best to honor those requests. Even if, even if the answer is no, not now, um, I think it's important that I understand where help is needed and do my best to figure out how to, how to get help there. That's how I try to show up is, is how do I help folks that have not had the opportunity um, generationally have not had the opportunity in their leadership yet um, to navigate philanthropy formally. How do I help those people um, gain confidence? How do I help them translate what they're doing into philanthropy speak so that they can (laughs) be successful, not just at the Minneapolis Foundation, but beyond. And so even if that thousand dollars is not a lot of money, but they can put it on their website and say they got money from us as a way of, of validating their work and their, their brilliance and what they're doing in community. That's what I want to do. Does that get heavy? Heavy is a good word, but I think the heavy comes when we have moments like we saw in 2020 with, with George Floyd being murdered or heavy happens when, I see the lives um, snuffed out in community and I feel like I'm in a role where I could do something and I don't know what to do. And reality is I know I can't solve it myself, right? Like I know this logically, but I feel compelled, right? I feel the heaviness of the the collective grief of community. And I sit and I'm thinking whether or not I am doing enough and then you have people saying, you're not doing enough, right? <laughs> and so, and it's like, well, okay, so can you be more concrete? <laughs> can you help a sister out? Because I'm actually struggling with the, the, the same idea of that, right? Right, right. So it, gets, it gets heavy then. Um, I think that on a day-to-day basis, I think I more internalize it to, I know that I can't, I can't meet all of the expectation even if I want to, because time is limited and I'm, I'm human, right? Like there's only so much I can do in a day. I still have family responsibilities and I feel, I feel that, right? So I have to calibrate from overperformance 
and the expectations of others to setting the course and the rules and, and how I show up yeah. in a way that's comfortable to me and my leadership so that I don't lose track of myself. All right. It's hard though. Yeah. Does it get heavy for you? Oh my God. Yeah. I feel the lived experience I bring to this role, I look at as an asset, you know, but it also feels like an assignment, right? Like it feels like I have the responsibility to bring with me all of the people who didn't get that call, right? And to be mindful of what it means to have someone like me doing the work that I do. Just wanting to make sure that that I honor that. And sometimes it does, it does feel like a lot sometimes when you're in a space, you're in a room where you know if you don't say it, no one anybody else is. <laughs> or if you don't do it, nobody else is. Well, okay. So, okay. If we're going to go there, then you couple that with, and if I say it, then I got to deal with rationalizing, Mm -hmm. justifying the live experience and the voices that I'm bringing with me. Mm -hmm. So you, some, you sit between your, your holding, it's not even a bridge. It's like a, what what do you call Like, I don't know where you're, you're holding, like you're holding. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And so you have to select those moments. Mm-hmm. You have to be selective. You do you have, have to be selective. You, and you have to know what strategy to deploy and mm-hmm. how you communicate. Yes. 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 And you have to, for the sake of the bigger fight, know which battles are worth it and which aren't. So is that exhausting or what? <sighs> yeah, it can be sometimes. Right. It can be sometimes. But then, you know, I have moments when we have, you know, I have a black or brown staff person who comes into my office and has a conversation with me that I know that they wouldn't be able to have with anybody else here. And they can walk away feeling seen and heard and validated and supported. And it reminds me of why I'm here and it renews me Mm -hmm. Um, and it makes me feel like it mattered um, and matters that I continue to push. This is why representation matters and I say it a lot. I remember I say Karen Kelly Arula's name a lot because she was in this role that I have um, now. You know, it looked a little bit different, but she was in this role at the Minneapolis Foundation. And she also attended my church. And I remember coming up in the work and sort of understanding what she did, mm-hmm. right? Just like kind of understanding what she did early on and thinking, man, I want to do something like that one day. I only could identify that I wanted to do something like that one day because there was someone that looked like me doing the thing. Yep. Right. I had someone that allowed me to aspire into a role because she was representing the role in community in a way that was accessible. And it looked like something that I wanted to do to make a difference. There were many other people doing that work, but I knew her as a black woman doing that work. It matters, right? Like you can be what you can see as they say, right? So it matters. It matters. And knowing that is what makes the fight worth it. 
Right. Yeah, it fills your cup. Yeah, it fills your cup. I brought up the issue of exhaustion because the podcast I did with Jesse, he talked about code switching. Oh, yeah. And he was just like, it's exhausting. Like you come in the room and you're trying to figure out which way to go and how to say it or whatever, right? Like that's exhausting work. So that's why I brought it up, right? Is that I think that there are a lot of things that are really tough. And I think that there are lots of us trying to figure out how to navigate in these times that can be challenging. And then we also understand statistically from data, from experience, from what we are seeing, that there is still a crisis, right? Again, in, in, in Eric Coder's words, of, of yep. representation. Yep. Whether or not it's in the political sphere, whether or not it's in leadership, whether or not it's in governance on our boards, um, whether or not it's in some of our offices, there's still a crisis in representation at a time that we are trying to advance justice and, and equity, yes. Yes. right? And when representation is there, I have seen places that have been very mindful and intentional about how to make sure that it's not just a diversity in the room, but it's representation in the room of the ideas and the experience. And those are not the same thing. No, because all skin folk ain't kin folk. I mean, they're not. not. And the code switching thing is interesting because... um, you know, I, I mean, I certainly, you know, as any good communications professional would, I, I tailor my pitch to my audience, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm, I'm me everywhere I go for, for better or worse, you know, for better or worse. I mean, I'm pretty doggone consistent. Like, this is kind of what you get. Yeah, you know? there's not a whole lot of secrets. And what I don't say, I pretty much show on my face. Oh, my gosh. Well, my face tells all my business. Yeah. You're going to pretty much get a clue. Mm-hmm. And if I don't say nothing, don't push it. <laughs> right. 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 If I don't say anything, just say thank you. <laughs> yeah. You don't need me to be quiet for about a good 24 hours. Just leave me be. But I, I, I appreciate this conversation and sort of the evolution of, of your leadership and our stories, which I think are so similar. Right. And. And so familiar um, in many many respects of the brilliance that exists within our communities. Mm -hmm. Like no matter how distressed, there are more people that live there that are brilliant and they really just need the safety net and the investment that allow them to move forward in a way that advances that brilliance into roles and leaderships that impact all of our community. And that's what the work is. That's what the work is. That is exactly what the work is. Like, we are not the exceptions, right? We're, we're, Nowhere we're not near the exception. it. Nowhere near it. There are so many wonderfully, dynamically brilliant people in our communities that just need an opportunity and a, and a platform or just someone to look at them and see that they can be more. Right on. I right. Say, said this before. My mom said some of the most brilliant people are sitting in jail yep. across our country. And it's not because they weren't smart. It was because they were dealt a hand. Some yep. of them just dealt a hand and they slipped through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I don't mean, think it, you're smarter. <laughs> no, don't think you're smarter. Don't think you're better. You probably are just luckier. Right. You know, you just, you just got lucky. It's like, yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot, you know, just in my own neighborhood. I mean, I, I I wasn't the only smart kid. 
I certainly wasn't the only talented kid. I just happened to get a scholarship. That, that was the difference. Before we close in the season of Thanksgiving, you know, would you share something that you're hopeful for or thankful for? I'm thankful to have the opportunity to be somebody else's opportunity. And I'm thankful for that and grateful for it and grateful to all the people who saw something in me and for all of the people like you who support me and support my leadership and give me just that little bit more boost, right? To kind of, you know, say what I believe with my chest, right? You know, it matters. It matters. So um, I'm thankful for you and thankful that we were able to have this conversation. Thank you, Casey. And that's Casey Atayero and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Shonda.